0: Let us begin, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord help us to understand the beginning of the Catholic Church and the importance of it, not only to us, but to you, for it is an extension of you yourself. Therefore, give us the strength and the grace to open our minds and our hearts and to set aside any preconceived notions of the church and to accept it for what we believe that it is. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Obviously, to those that are listening, this is not... A recording of the actual first class, or first meeting of this session, due to some unknown technical mishap, the recording stopped after the first five minutes or so, and I lost all of the original recordings of the session, and therefore I'm trying to do the best I can in repeating the subject matter for the continuity of the listener when he or she picks up the next lessons, which hopefully will be recorded fully properly in the original. Obviously, there will be no charge for this CD for anyone. So we thank you for putting up with uh, the inconvenience of listening to this as a rather dull uh, commentary without the spontaneity and the interaction of the many people that attended the first class. So I thank you and I praise you. Uh, for being patient the purpose and the meaning of the 10 week session that we are about to start <coughs> today is the idea that the church the catholic church is an extension of God himself if we re- call that God promised to be with us forever, as it says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, that he would be with us forever. And this is the way that he is with us, physically in the presence and the appearance of the Catholic Church, also with the guidance of the Holy Spirit whose job it is, really, to fulfill and carry forward the actions of the Father in the Old Testament times, and of Jesus Christ in the New Testament times, and from the point of Pentecost Sunday going forward, the time and the role of the Holy Spirit, as it is displayed in the illustration of the handout that you received as part of uh, this lesson. So we hope that you will be able to have that at hand and refer to it as we go along. Continuing on, the Catholic Church did not just come out of nowhere. Or be hatched like an egg it actually was part of god's plan of salvation right from the very beginning of time if we go back to old testament literature and scripture we see that in the book of genesis god promised adam and eve after their sin to send a redeemer in time to aid them and their descendants uh, to get over and past their sin and to still be saved for all eternity if they follow the teachings of god that comes to us originally from abraham and then moses and then down through the prophets and to the church and to the church teachings and this is the way we have to look at it the Catholic Church is founded on the teachings that come to us through the Old Testament God again promised several of the people of the Old Testament through commitments such as the beginning of Judaism with Abraham and the carrying it forward through Moses and the time of Moses and all of those things that Moses and God interacted with in their role as leader of the Jewish people through the Sinai Desert uh, for 40 years. And then the carrying forward of that with various people such as uh, Samuel and then again with David and all of the prophets. The whole idea of God's plan of salvation is carried forward through these people and through their scriptures. Now let me digress for a moment. The scriptures of the Old Testament were not written down as we know them today, until somewhere around the 9th or 10th century B.C. And they were not written as holy scriptures. They were written as histories. We have to remember that the histories of various ancient cultures were the only way that they maintained an identity. And the written histories were extremely important to these people, but the Jewish people did not have those until they were urged by either King David or Solomon. We are not certain of who that was. But nevertheless, one of these major persons of the Old Testament, David or Solomon, encouraged his people to write down their histories so that they would maintain in identity and the histories then began with a small group of people in the southern kingdom of Judah remember that after David and Solomon the kingdom that was brought together and solidified by David was then separated into two separate kingdoms again uh, by his grandson Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. These two kingdoms became Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And I'm talking about the territories that we now call Israel. The southern kingdom was the favored one because it, came, it contained the city. Of Jerusalem the northern kingdom of Israel actually contained more people but less of the more prominent peoples of the person of the uh, Old Testament scriptures nevertheless in the southern kingdom a small group of people began to write down their histories these were called the Yahwist people and Yahweh's coming from the Hebrew word for God. Later on, a group of people in the northern kingdom called the, El- the Eloist, which was their way of expressing the term of God. And those two groups together wrote down the majority of the histories of the writings and the happenings of the Jewish people thus far. They did not contain the book of Genesis because none of the histories contain sufficient documentation or mention of the histories going back prior to Moses. These came along at a much later date by the priest Ezra, but I'm getting a little ahead of the story. The third group of people that contributed to the Old Testament were called the Deuteronomists. These were people in the northern kingdom who were faithful and reliable to the teachings of Moses. And because of the wickedness of the various kings that came along in the northern kingdom, this poor poor group of of, uh, Deuteronomists wanted to preserve the writings and the teachings of Moses. And therefore they brought together all of the teachings that were in existence or were remembered about Moses and then added some of their own. So Deuteronomy, although it sounds as it came from the mouth of Moses, it really did not. It was just a repeating of what was remembered by the people of the 8th or ninth century B.C. Um, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Later on, much later after the babylonian captivity came the fourth group of people called the priestly group the priestly group of people ruling the temple or ruling the jewish people began during the time of the babylonian captivity in the sixth century bc the synagogue system also began at this time, where people would meet in special uh, groups in private homes to discuss the histories that had been written thus far. Over a period of time, these histories became so important to the Jewish people that they eventually uh, were considered sacred. After the Babylonian captivity, the priest Ezra gathered up all of these histories uh, from the Yalawas, the Elois and the Deuteronomist, and the priestly group, and sorted them out into the divisions that we have now of the, uh, the Exodus, the Leviticus, the Numbers, and the Deuteronomy. But, of course, Genesis was non-existent at that time, and therefore it is believed that the priest Ezra wrote most of the book that we call Genesis around the beginning of the 5th century as part of his formalizing and separating all of the histories and separating much of the duplication and the errors out under a great deal of inspiration from the Holy Spirit. These five books then became the basis of the Jewish Torah and were honored and revered as the sacred writings after Judaism became more solidified and formalized during the times Of the monarchy which extended from the time of David down through the Babylonian captivity the monarchy then was destroyed along with the priestly group in the time of the Babylonian captivity however the priestly group grew up even stronger in going forward from Babylonian captivity to the time of Christ when there was no king there was no other ruler so the main person or subject of authority became the chief high priest and that is what we find at the time of Christ but being human the positions the importance of the chief high priest (laughs) became so ingrained on those who held the title that it took a greater importance. And that is why Christ condemned not only the Pharisees, but most of the high priests. And their role got a little out of hand. And as I said, This is what Christ was condemning because they were not fulfilling the role that was intended for them and for all of the Jewish people. Going back a little bit, the Jewish people were to be the spokespeople, the light to the nations, so that God could speak through them and then to all of the other nations. Unfortunately, that did not happen. The Jewish people, taking such great pride in the fact that God was conversing directly with them through uh, the prophets and a few other dignitaries uh, within the Jewish tribes, that they became a very exclusive uh, community and did not allow interaction or intermarriage or interdealings with anyone else. To them, anyone who was not a faithful Jew was a Gentile, which to them was a very derogatory term. People outside of Judaism didn't really understand that, uh, and so it really was not affecting anyone outside. But to the Jewish people, the term Gentile was a very derogative term. We accept that today as accepting anyone who is not a Jew is now a Gentile, and that doesn't seem to be much of a problem for anyone. But going back, Jesus, when he was here on earth, confronted many of the temple rulers for not leading the people according to the teachings and the wishes of God that came to them through Moses and uh, through David and the prophets. The prophets, if you read them uh, with this understanding, uh, are very specific, particularly Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those are very specific, in the teachings of God. Uh, For example, Isaiah in chapter 49 uh, calls the Jewish people a light to the nations. And yet they did not hold up as being the actual light. They wished to be an exclusive community and would not allow anyone in unless they went through the ritual of circumcision. This is one of the contentions that came up even later when many of the Jewish people did accept Christ and converted to Jerusalem. Uh, and when the uh, uh, Gentiles accepted Christ and became Christians, they seemed to be in a never-never land did they have to follow the Jewish rules and laws and, of circumcision and the other rules uh, of the Torah, the law, or not? And this was settled by Paul at a later date. In chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles, this comes out rather clearly. And that was the main subject of that particular portion of the New Testament chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles but we're getting ahead of the story again Judaism was intended to be a light to the nations it was a major part of God's plan of salvation and we might say the roots of Christianity but it could not and did not fulfill all of the needs of God's plan Because the epitome or the apex of God's plan of salvation was the need for reparation for the sins of all mankind. And nothing that the Jewish people had or could ever have or do would satisfy that need. And therefore, God had to give Himself or a portion of Himself uh, to the Jewish people as a perfect offering and that giving of himself was in the person of jesus christ who was born as any jewish little baby was at that particular time he was born of a woman who was set aside from all eternity by god to bear his son and therefore jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, the woman who was preserved from all sin from the beginning of her conception until her uh, assumption into heaven. This was necessary for God to have a perfect vehicle to carry his son for the nine months of gestation because God and mankind could not live together If it was a sinful mankind, and therefore the perfect offering of herself to God became the, what we call, the Ark of the New Covenant, which is mentioned in chapter 11 and 12 of the book of Revelation. So God himself came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ and began to preach and teach a whole new concept of God's relationship with mankind. It was then that Jesus mentioned many times that the Jewish people were wrong in being an exclusive community, that they had to go out and be a light to the nations. And we, as Catholics, have to continue that and be our light to the nations. We cannot be as the Jewish people who hold their faith close to their vest and will not open up to others. We must go out and spread the gospel as best we can. Now, we're not asking people to do extraordinary things that they are not equipped to do. God understands that and asks us to witness as best we can within our own circumstances and our abilities. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but nevertheless. So, the great commissioning of Jesus to his apostles, as described in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, is to go out and teach and preach to all people of all faiths, and bring them in, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And this is what they were commissioned to do. The apostles were then told to go out and preach and teach as Jesus did. But what did they preach and teach? Well, for the most part, because there was nothing formalized, there was nothing written down. Remember, God, through Jesus Christ, did not write anything down. He did not leave a blueprint of any kind. But it was through his teachings and his life, death, and resurrection resurrection example. This is what the apostles taught because there was nothing else. Now, how did that take place? Well, we have no specific writings to give us details, but we do know that they maintained their Jewish identity for the first 20 or 30 years, and they used the words of Christ in the changing of the bread and wine at the Last Supper, and used those words and examples as the basis for their rememberings, rememberings of God. And they started out by doing that at their own dinner meals. Gradually, over a period of time, when they started adding some of the Jewish songs and the Jewish writings along with that, uh, they decided that it was more important to separate the ceremony of the changing of the bread and wine and the receiving of that bread and wine into a separate ceremony apart from the regular uh, dinner meals of the Jewish people. And therefore, it was begin to separate and become a ceremony all of its own. Later, as Paul's letters began to be circulated, which is around the year 50 AD, uh, These were added, along with the Jewish writings and some of the Jewish songs, into the ceremony of the breaking of the bread. And that's what it was called for many, many years. Now, we talk about Paul's letters. Where did Paul come from? He was not one of the Twelve Apostles. Uh, but God's benevolence far exceeds man's thoughts and desires. And therefore, around the year 45, 47, we're not certain uh, Paul or Saul of Tarsus came into the scene. He was an important member of the Pharisees and he took it upon himself to start rounding up and persecuting these so-called Christians because they seemed to be desecrating the law, the Jewish Torah, and some of the uh, ceremonies and the customs and traditions of the Jewish people, so he began a series of persecutions where he was rounding them up and bringing them back uh, to Jerusalem for trial, persecution, and in many cases, uh, execution. So on one of these trips to Damascus to do, as I've just mentioned, uh, he was struck by what appeared to be a light from the heavens, the skies, and a voice came out of that light saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, of course, Paul struck, rather uh, not knowing exactly what to say or do, said, Who are you, sir? And the voice says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now, if you take that and think about it, Paul was not persecuting the person of Jesus. He was persecuting the people of Jesus. This is the first indication that Jesus himself equated his people, his church, with himself. an important point to remember because the church is an extension of Jesus Christ himself. And therefore, this is the first indication of that. But getting back to Paul and his letters, in the Acts of the Apostles, there are three or four repeats of the conversion experience that Paul has when he is thrown, uh, we assume, from his horse. And for three days he was unable to see because the light apparently blinded him. But he heard this voice and he knew that something unusual was in process and he was told by the voice, again, to go into Damascus and to a certain house and a certain man who would then be instructed to take care of him and tell him what to do. And so Paul has his people, who also saw the light but not, did not hear the voice, take him into Damascus and to the house of Ananias. And he spent three days there. Ananias talked to him and eventually convinced him that this was something very, very special that God was bringing to Paul. But, of course, Ananias could not explain it, and Paul really did not understand right away until another person came from another source who was sent by God and who then instructed Paul on Jesus Christ and the meaning of his death and resurrection and the ceremony of the breaking of the bread. Paul then wanted to be baptized and then follow This voice and this idea of God, who he knew really nothing about, except that he knew that all of these Jewish people were following this person called Jesus. And this was the whole concept that Paul was persecuting before, but now seemed to be awakened to the fact that this was from God himself. So. Even though the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1 through 20, say that Paul got up and immediately started to preach uh, the meaning of Jesus, uh, that is not quite the case. After his three days with Ananias, as it says, pardon me, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Through 20, that Paul went to Arabia. Uh, We have no idea where in Arabia or why Arabia, but nevertheless, that is what it says. He went to Arabia and he gives us the impression that he was there for approximately three years. The three is not mentioned, but other circumstances put it together that he was there for some time, during which he received some revelations, assuming from the Holy Spirit, as it says in 2 Corinthians 12, chapter 12, verses 1 to 7, that he received a series of very special and informative revelations that we assume were the basis of the theology that Paul later taught in his various letters particularly in Galatians and in Romans. <clears throat> Otherwise, there would be no basis for anything to teach. Paul had to have some special intervention from God in order to have the wisdom, the understanding, the discernment uh, to preach and teach the things that came from him because he is recognized as the first major theologian of the church, <laughs> and his whole uh, book or letter to the Romans is a great theology that could not have been given to us uh, from the apostles himself. But because he was person- personally designated by Christ Himself. He is then considered one of the apostles. And he is among the other eleven apostles is considered the only apostles. All of the others surrounding him, uh, Timothy, Titus, and many others, are not, even though they're often given the title apostle, technically they are not. All right? The word apostle is Greek for the word sent by uh, a person, a specific person, and in this case, of course, it is Jesus Christ himself. So, we have definitely um, indications from various parts of Paul's writings themselves that he was struck by God and His whole mind and heart was changed regarding the persecutions of Christians, and he became a Christian himself who was severely persecuted, trialed, and eventually executed. But after the three years, he returned to Damascus, the scene of the crime, you might say, and began his preaching and teaching, and his three great missionary trips uh, are extremely important not only to the people of his time but down through history because the writings that came from that are the basis for much of our Catholic theology. Going forward, the Catholic Church expanded after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ through the apostles. But the apostles, again, in the commissioning that I mentioned from Matthew chapter 28, said to go out to the whole world and bring people in. So most of the apostles did do that. Many of them went out uh, in all directions with the exception of Peter, Paul, uh, and John, and James. All the others went in different directions. We have only very uh, scant indications of where they went and what they said and did. But that brings us up to the time of Paul and the persecutions that really took fire around the middle of the first century A.D., which escalated not only in Palestine or Israel, but in Rome and in other places. It was Nero that began the persecutions of Christians in that area, (coughs) blaming them for the burning of Rome when history tells us that it was probably Nero himself who began the fires that consumed a a good portion of Rome during that period, but it was Nero who blamed the Christians and began the major persecutions throughout (coughs) the Roman Empire. Now, this was sporadic and not uh, widespread as often thought, but nevertheless it was severe enough, and it was escalated or escalating uh, the persecutions that began by the Jewish people against the Christians, particularly the Jewish people who converted to Christianity back in Jerusalem. And <clears throat> It was the Romans who tried to put down that rebellion, as they saw it, of the Roman of the Jewish people in Israel, uh, because they felt that they were just attacking each other. They did not understand the difference between Judaism and Christianity, and could have cared less. They were more interested in the <clears throat> whole idea of settling the dispute and just keeping things quiet. So, the Romans came into Israel in full battle gear and force around the middle of the year 66 A.D. We assume from other writings that it was June of 66 A.D., and carried on a battle that raged for three and a half years until the year 70 A.D., when they finally put down all of the Jewish people, the uprising people, and burned the temple. This destroyed Judaism uh, to a severe degree and decimated the priesthood. Judaism took many years to recover and never recovered to the same degree that they were prior to this time. That was part of Jesus and God's intent in his plan of salvation. Judaism could never fulfill God's plan, and therefore it took God himself, as I said earlier, as we see in John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world, meaning his people, that he gave his only begotten Son so that we might be saved. And therefore, we must look at it that way. Now, what does all of this mean to us today? One of the things that I'm trying to get across is that Jesus himself created his church by saying to St. Peter and to all of the apostles that upon this rock, and he was referring not to some big piece of granite out there, but to Peter himself, whose name was changed from Simon to uh, Cephas, Or Cephas, depending on whether you're talking Latin or Greek. And that means rock. And that is where we get the term rocky from when we're referring to a piece or a person of uh, solid stature and abilities uh, and presence. So he says. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is where we see the church being developed on the apostles, on what they taught and what they wrote, particularly uh, Paul, Peter, and John. Uh, also Matthew, Mark, and Luke later on. So that is why we call the Catholic Church the Apostolic Church. And that is why the New Testament contains only those books that were referenced or written in the first century A.D., as long as there was at least one of the apostles still alive and that was John himself, who was much younger than many of the other apostles. And John wrote probably the most of the Old Testament, or more than anyone else. It's sort of uh, equal between what John wrote and Paul wrote. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, our scriptures and our heritage comes through the apostles. Now, what we're trying to do in this whole series of ten lectures on the history of the church is to separate your thinking, and this is important for future uh, teachings because of the many unusual things that we will be talking about. To separate in your mind and heart the church and the concept of the church as Jesus and God intended and intends now and forever and separating it from the people who run it. God Himself is divine. The church is divine. And as Jesus said, the jaws Of hell, or the gates of hell, whichever, uh, will not prevail against it. In other words, it will last forever. God will be with us forever. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you see it, the people that run it will not, because they are human and subject to all kinds of problems, which we will see as we go forward, particularly when we talk about the heresies, and the Reformation in later uh, lessons or sessions. But it is important that we see that. Now, we know that many things have come up against them, and that is one thing that I would like to talk about right now, and that is the whole concept of where did evil come from? Because it is evil in the form of the devil that has plagued the church right from the beginning and has continued the cosmic battle between God and the devil or between good and evil. And so I wrote this paper, which is part of the handout <clears throat> or handouts uh, of the first session but I am repeating it here verbally because I want everybody to hear it and see it in the way that it is intended. <clears throat> Mankind has been battling evil ever since the beginning of time. We make fun of it. The devil made me do it. Or we treat it as a childish notion the boogeyman will get you. Or we try to ignore it as a myth. Nevertheless, We will not say that it doesn't exist, because that would be ignoring reality, but most of us just shove it under the table and move on. So where does evil come from, and what are its signs of identification? Although it is all around us, we often fail to see it, even when it is staring us in the face. Let me begin with the first written words or words about where evil comes from. We need to go back to the Old Testament and to the story of Adam and Eve and their encounter with a serpent in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. This is where God approaches them just after they have eaten the fruit that they had been forbidden to eat. <clears throat> Remember, this forbiddance was not a punishment. Rather, it was a boundary set up to protect them from experience evil, and it was a direct command from God himself. We must also remember that this story is an allegory and an instruction to explain how evil came into the world. This tells us, then, that evil existed before the world began. The Bible also tells us that the devil confronted Jesus at the beginning of his public life, shortly after his baptism, when he was in the desert. The devil also attacked Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified. Therefore, we cannot deny that the devil and evil exists. Theologians tell us that sometime before creation of the world and mankind, God was confronted by a band of certain angels who challenged God. The details of this are uncertain and not critical to our explanation here. But therefore, as a result of this challenge and defeat of the angels, they were condemned and driven from heaven for all eternity. This set up what is often referred to as the eternal cosmic balance between good and evil, or between God and the devil. <clears throat> this battle is still in process, and mankind is often caught in the middle of the, of, uh, evil or the devil, using the witness of mankind, I'm sorry, using the weaknesses, the devil using the weaknesses of mankind. Keep God. Let me go back. This battle is still in process, and mankind is often caught in the middle by the devil or evil using the weaknesses of mankind against God and His church. However, mankind is protected by the graces of God if He uses them. God, keep in mind that mankind and free will give us the opportunity and the need to make choices, and it is our choices that determine the direction we wish to go. However, rather than getting all upset about this, we know that it is quite rare that the devil will attack an individual directly or personally. His approach is usually through movements of large groups of people to go against certain laws or directives, or it might come from a very influential person demanding his or her way without regard to the right or wrong of the outcome. We will see a great deal of that when we are talking about the royalty trying to confront and gain power over the papacy in the... uh, 10th or 5th 5th to the 15th century. We can see this in many stories of the Old and the New Testament. We can also see this in the many heresies of the 2nd and 3rd centuries of the early church. We can see the devil working against the church in the Reformation movement of the 16th century Many of these were started by well-meaning people who got caught up in the temptations of the devil against God and took many of them with him. So, we cannot ignore evil or say that it doesn't exist. We cannot excuse ourselves either and say that the devil made me do it. We are exposed to it, but we know right from wrong. And God's graces are far more important and powerful and plentiful if we only, through prayer, are constantly vigilant and we protect ourselves and our faith. That, of course, in motion, the current battles that we are experiencing in the sexual harassment and the pedophilia uh, tragedies that are happening uh, or happen in the church over the last 20 or 30 years. These are not something that happened just yesterday or last week. These have happened over a long period of time, and it's unfortunate they are coming to light and what is even more tragic in a way is that little has been done about it uh, on a global scale. We must keep in mind that it is not just an American problem but it has happened all over the world. We must keep in mind also that it is not a Catholic church problem. It happens in other churches. It happens in the entertainment industry. It happens in the sports field of all kinds. And it is, it is endemic throughout all of society today. Unfortunately, communication is such that the media gloats on this kind of news because it sells. Uh, unfortunately, so many people are condemned through accusation uh, without the need uh, for proof of condemnation <clears throat> presentation to a group of people there is no rebuttal to what I just have said nevertheless you can understand and imagine that there was a great amount of feelings expressed feelings of all kinds of feelings for the church and feelings for individuals resentment against the church, even by good Catholics, resentment against the Pope, it went on and on and on. I had to close the meeting uh, because it was way past the normal time uh, that we usually run, and it was way past the time that could be filled or really be made useful when recorded on a CD. Therefore, I am ending this session hoping and praying that the Lord will bless us all with a resolution to this problem in our lifetime. But we must remember that if the basis of this is from the devil and not man-made, only man-made, then it will continue on in different forms and faces. Thank you. God bless you.